Our Father, we're thankful that we can have good fellowship in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given to us the basic joy and hope and peace, whereby we can face the issues of life with the confidence that you will bring all things together for our good and for your great kingdom purposes. We're so thankful to be a part of your kingdom and to know that your kingdom is victorious. Even though the world around us seems to be crumbling and, and people seem to be moving in droves uh, towards the broad path, we know, Lord, that you will bring your perfect purposes into reality in your time. And, Lord, we have a sense that that might not be too far in the distant future. We just pray that whatever is going to transpire in the years ahead, that we will be faithful to you, that our study of, of your word will help us to understand your nature and your character uh, and your call upon us, and will teach, teach us faithfulness and confidence and grant to us that, that overwhelming hope that uh, all that we have committed unto you will be kept until that day. Lord, bless us this hour, I pray. Guide us in our study, and I pray that throughout our Sunday school this morning, you will minister in each and every class in Christ's name. Amen. If we can turn to, if we may turn to 33rd chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter 33. I'd like to read the first six verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. When the people heard these sad words, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that you may know what I will do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Well, in spite of the heinous sin that Israel had committed in prostituting themselves to a, a heretical God in the form of this golden calf, God is going to allow them to continue on the journey that he had outlined for them before they had ever left Egypt. They were going to be able to continue on to the promised land. He says to Moses, go up to the land which I have promised. And the question is, why is God doing this? And of course the answer is in the passage. God said, because I promised this to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that their descendants would inherit this land, and therefore I'm going to fulfill my covenant in spite of the fact that you have chased after a heretical God. And God said even beyond that, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you to prepare the way. An angel was going to go before Israel to smooth the path, path as it were, 
for them. But God puts an interesting disclaimer in here. He says, however, I am not going to go up in your midst. Because if I were to go up in your midst and you persist in your sin, I must destroy you. Well, those words fell heavily on the ears of the Israelites as Moses transmitted God's message to them. And I think we need to note that God's warning here is absolutely serious. When he says, I'm not going to be in your midst because if you continue in your sin, I must destroy you, God means exactly what he's saying. But at the same time, he is testing the, the attitude of repentance that the Israelites have begun to display. Th this is a test as well as a you know, promise. God instructed Moses exactly what to say to the people and what they were to do in order to demonstrate the sincerity of their repentance. They were to take off all their jewelry, all their ornaments, uh, as an outward expression of the humility, the, the humble submission that they were proclaiming, at least, that they had towards God. Well, they're kind of overwhelmed by God's threat here. Because I'm not going to go with you. Well, I mean, it's, it's hard for us. I mean, I, I suppose we could put ourselves in their place in some way. But, but to think about these people. I mean, they are slaves. The children of slaves. The grandchildren of slaves. All they'd known is slavery for 400 years. And now they're out here in the wilderness all on their own. And the one who's led them there, the one who performed tremendous miracles in Egypt, who brought them through the Red Sea by parting the waters, how could they forget that? Now isn't going to be with them. That's a frightening thought. And the people were overwhelmed by this. And they went into mourning. And I think it was with joy they stripped off their ornaments. Anything you say, God, just... To, to possibly uh, receive your favor. I'll take anything you want off. You know, they pull off all of their jewelry. I mean, they had enthusiastically torn the earrings from the ears and given them to, to um, Aaron so that Aaron would then make a golden calf out of them. How much more enthusiastically now should they be willing to remove all ornaments at the command of Yahweh? The last line, I think, of verse 5 helps us to understand that this is really a test because he says, Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. Yeah. There's some room there, as you can see. God's statement that he will not be with them is not punctuated with an exclamation point underlined and, underlined and put in a box. God is allowing a little room here. Because he had accepted their obedience and their humble submission as a symbol of their sincerity. His word is no longer a blunt, I will not be with you. But now he is saying in effect, I will determine what I will do with you if I continue to see submission and repentance in your hearts. Well, as a reminder of their repentance, the scripture passage tells us that they would keep their ornaments off from Mount Horb onward. In other words, throughout the remaining years in the wilderness and into the promised land, they would continue to, to walk with God without wearing their ornaments, without wearing their jewelry, their necklaces, their bracelets, their anklets, their earrings, their nose rings, or whatever it was they were all wearing. 
I think it's important for us not to misconstrue this. This is not saying that there is something innately sinful with jewelry. That is not the point of this passage at all. They had been very willing in taking off their jewelry as part of their rebellion. How much more willing should they be to keep it off as a sign of submission to God? I, I think it's important here we understand the symbolism. The symbolism was what's key here. Uh, the literalness of the jewelry is not the real important thing. It's the meaning behind it here that's important. The circumstance, this circumstance, the symbolism, is that spiritual wholeness. Being right in the eyes of God is more important than physical beauty or physical attractiveness. And the people were getting the point. And the people were willing to surrender that issue in their lives if that's what God required. It was, th this action was sort of an early version or a different version of the same concept of being so much in submission and repentance that you're willing to dress in sackcloth and put ashes on your head as we see many, many times in Scripture. This is another version of the same type of action. God had given them the ornaments in the first place. You, you remember, when they were leaving Egypt, they, everyone asked his neighbor for whatever he wanted to ask of his neighbor from the Egyptians, and they gave it to him. And that's where they got all this gold. I mean, as slaves, did they have a lot of gold ornaments? Certainly not. But they had acquired all of this, and, and God had given it to them. And so, uh, that wasn't the point. The point God is making here is also that if they're willing to not wear this stuff, then maybe they're also going to be willing to give it for the construction of the tabernacle. Because the construction of the tabernacle was going to acquire a great deal of gold. And they just didn't happen to have Fort Knox, you know, walking around with them out there. So most of this gold was going to come in the form of jewelry. In the ancient world, gold and silver, these precious metals, were mostly used in the form of ornaments. They didn't just go around with blocks of, you know, what do we call them, bars of, uh, of gold and silver like we have today, you know, in the, in the great banks where you have these stamped bars of gold and silver and so forth. They didn't have that in those days. Uh, they didn't really have much of a concept of money. In fact, as I think I've mentioned to you before, the coin was not even invented then. The coin was not invented for hundreds of years later in a different part of the world. And, and so whenever you hear of money being paid out, like so many shekels of something, as, as Abraham paid for the field of Mechpelah, we're talking about silver that was probably in granular form or some form, possibly small little ingots, but not in what we think of today and not in money form per se. So where is all this gold going to come from? It's going to come primarily from their jewelry. So if they're willing to give it up to serve God, certainly they'll be willing to give it up in order to construct the tabernacle. David. Question at this point. Uh, in God talking about his presence, is this perhaps a reference to where the, the pillar and the cloud stops going with them, that there's no outward evidence that, that God is actually leading them at this point? Or have we already left that, that back there? No, we haven't left it back there. In fact, we're going to see as we get a little bit further along in this passage that the pillar of cloud shows up, but it's outside the camp. Right, right. And I think it's, it's a declaration that God will not be active in their midst as he had been before. His activity will be out here. Mm -hmm. 
It's not that he has gone over the hill and chosen some other people in some other country. It's just that uh, they're going to have to deal with the issue of, of God not being actually active in their midst and, and guiding them, protecting them with this kind of uh, spiritual wall around them. At least that's as, uh, how I understand it. The pillar will continue to go with them. And of course, later on, as we'll note, when they do build the tabernacle, God, and which is in their midst, uh, the, God's presence will, will fill it. So at this point, it's, um, it's a way of God revealing to them that they have to walk by faith or else they're going to have to walk alone. And that was something they couldn't face doing. And certainly not Moses, and, and that really, really comes out in this, uh, in this passage. If we read beginning at verse 7 here, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent, that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. We've got a strange little passage of Scripture here. What we are discovering is that Moses erected a tent outside the camp, a tent wherein he met God, and he called it the tent of meeting. Now, as you probably know, having read these passages at other times, the tabernacle will be called the tent of meeting. This is not the tabernacle. We know it's not the tabernacle for two reasons. They haven't built the tabernacle yet. That's one reason. <laughs> Moses has just received the commandments and the instructions from God on the top of Mount Sinai. And, and they have not put this into operation. I mean, he has just come down off the mountain. He has just seen the people in rebellion. He has just broken the Ten Commandments. He has not even gone back up yet to have God recarve the Ten Commandments on two new stone tablets. So, I mean, where would the time be to have built a tabernacle? There was no time to build a tabernacle. This is not the tabernacle. Plus, there's another key here. We're told that this tent of meeting was outside the camp. The tabernacle was always in the midst of the camp. The tabernacle was the central point in the camp. The, the camp was built around the tabernacle on all four sides of the tabernacle. This is not the tabernacle. Some people misconstrue this. And, and they, they think that somehow this is the tabernacle. But it's not the tabernacle. But we don't know anything about the details of this tent. It just is bluntly introduced here. As if we should already know about it. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp. What tent? Well, this tent, which he calls the tent of meeting. Now, why did he do this? Was it that Moses felt that he needed to have a place that was away from the people where he could go and be alone and commune with God? I mean, that's biblical. 
Well, the scripture does tell us that we are to spend part of our prayer time at least shut up in our closet, communing with our Father. Did God command him to build this? Well, we don't know. Scripture doesn't say. We're not told anything about this tent, actually. It's totally silent. Scripture's totally silent on the origin of this particular tent of meeting. But I think there's an interesting little possibility here. And that is that Moses erected this tent outside the camp as a visual aid to Israel. God's not here, he's out there. You got the point, people? Because of your sin, God is no longer here in our midst. He's out there. He's outside the camp. And I must go to the outside of the camp in order to commune with God because of your sin. The idea, of course, would be that this would hopefully, as the people see the reality of it, it would cause them, it would stimulate them to, to more repentance, fuller repentance, to, to greater submission and humility before God, to rejecting any idea of rebellion totally from their minds. It says that the tent was a good distance outside the camp. In other words, it wasn't just 100 yards outside the camp. It was apparently so far outside the camp that it was a good walk, but it was still visible to the people there. Being it was a good distance outside the camp, this meant that those who wanted to seek God would have to commit themselves to the time and the energy of going purposely out there to meet with God. I think that there's a really important application here principle that we need to constantly remind ourselves in our make-everything-easy society. And that is that a true fellowship, true relationship to God is not convenient. God is not a convenient God in the sense that, hey, you know, whatever fits our schedule is fine with Him. We, we have to realize that we cannot take our drive-through fast food approach to God. No. Oh, whenever we're on a trip, what do we do? We're in a hurry. We just whip into McDonald's, whip through the drive-thru, and then, then drive and eat, you know? So the eating doesn't interfere <laughs> with making time down the highway. And, and this can become an attitude that we display towards everything, even towards God, and God will have none of it. There's no way that we can avoid taking our time and going out of our way to establish a right relationship to God. True intercessory prayer and meaningful Bible study are, as you may have noticed, hard work. It is not convenient to pray intercessorily for other people. It is not convenient to put aside time to meaningfully study the Bible. Now, I'm not going to denigrate anything here, but if our lives are made up of just the little book that you read at breakfast with one little verse and a few words about that verse and, and that's it, that's, that's a fast food approach to Bible. That's not Bible study at all, actually. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's probably a good thing. But it's not a sufficient thing. And the only way we can know God is to know His Word. And the only way we can know His Word is to spend hours and hours and hours in it, studying it, trying to understand it, asking God in prayer to open our eyes and open our minds and open our hearts to the truth of His Word.
and to make it real to us today in our lives. Even the Old Testament, which seems strange to some people. When you and I are living in this world, I think we discover that being a serious Christian, that is someone who believes what the Bible says, someone who truly tries to pray for one another and pray for the church, who truly wants to know the Word of God, that kind of a Christian but wears a stigma. Not only do you possess that stigma in the world, but unfortunately often you wear the same stigma in the church. Because most of us are, are functioning within a church in America that is a fast food church. You know, just kind of wing it on in there on Sunday morning and get your little hour and hope the pastor doesn't go over that hour. And, you know, get your little injection here. What is it? Sermonettes for Christianettes kind of approach. <laughs> That's an old one. <laughs> and, and, you know, and, and out the door and uh, see you seven days from now, God. God won't tolerate that because there's no way you can know God. We can know God if that's the way, the approach we take. A committed Christian is often shunned as some kind of a religious nut or as a weakling. You know, somebody who needs God or the Bible as a crutch. Can't make it through life, you know, without God to lean on. Well, you all have noticed because we live in a part of the world where they make a big deal about salmon and steelhead and, and all these kinds of things that only the strong swim upstream. It's easy to float downstream. It's easy to float with the crowd. There's no strength needed there at all. You just kind of become a jellyfish like the rest of the crowd and just float on down the river, you know. So if you're such a weakling because you depend on God, how come you're the one swimming upstream, huh? It's, of course, ridiculous concept. But, you know, I have found, and, and you have found too, that uh, it's, it gets kind of lonely if you really, really take your faith seriously. And if you really become people committed to prayer and committed to a serious study of God's Word, it's kind of lonely. There's not a lot of people who want to do that. Not a lot of people who think it's necessary. But I think a lot of people are going to be very surprised as to whom God is one day because they haven't found out along the way as they have professed faith in Him. It would be easier to be a deist. Oh, sure. It's a much easier to be a deist. God and He created all this mess and He took off for a long vacation and it hasn't been heard from since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... You read some of the prayers that were prayed by the people in the late 18th century, and, and you, you know, it's, they are mostly exercises in flowery speech. But there were some deists who kind of uh, moved away a bit from their deism after a while, you know, kind of like Benjamin Franklin every, every once in a while prayed a prayer that you could actually believe in, <laughs> in spite of his uh, deistic uh, tendencies. But that is true. Well, you know, a lot of Christians, or people who are called Christians, are in effect practicing deists. You know, they're, they're, the, real, the reality of their faith is not there. And, you know, it's kind of tragic to me. I mean, it's very tragic. But that's, but that's what we need to deal with. We have to analyze our own lives and find out if, if, if where, where, where we are in this. Are we serious in our commitment to God? I mean, that's what God is dealing with Israel here. He, he wants them to understand the difference between just toying with the idea of God so that you could even accept a golden bull as possibly a representative of God and follow him around 
I mean, to, to understand him well enough so that if somebody teaches heresy, red flags fly. You understand heresy the minute it comes along because you know him and you know his word. And if that is true, you won't be seduced by heresy. And we have an awful lot of heresy floating around in the world today. And when somebody calls it heresy, they, get, they catch it from all sides by others who don't see that it is heresy. And they think you're just being a bigoted, narrow-minded uh, person of some sort. Well, the Israelites are very, very chastised in spirit for their sin. And so they paid close attention not only to the words of God through Moses, but they paid close attention to what Moses was doing. And, and somebody spread the word. A minute Moses was headed out of the camp. Moses going out of the camp, boys. So everybody got to their tent to watch Moses go out to this tent of meeting. Commune with God. And they would stand in their in the entrances to their tents, and the scripture says they would worship God. Now, the camp was vast, so we have to think of the practicality of this, too. I mean, there are tents spread all over this plain here, so obviously not everybody could just stand his tent way and see Moses out there because there would be tents in his way, but they could all see the pillar of cloud as it came down to the tent of meeting to stand at the entrance of his tent, and who knows how tall that pillar was. Scripture doesn't say. I don't think it was just a short little thing. I think it towered up into the atmosphere. And the Israelites could see it from anywhere they were in the camp as Moses communed with God. Moses, they knew, was their intercessor. Moses was the man who stood between them and the Almighty. And if Moses was communing with God, they would worship God individually and collectively, in that they were all doing it at the same time, unfortunately, they were worshiping at a distance because God was no longer in their midst. Now, verse 11 is a very wonderful verse. It says, Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks with his friend. That'd be a wonderful thing. Well, you know, in, in many ways, we can do that. We can commune to God, as it were, face to face, as with, our, with a friend. There was an intimate relationship here between God and Moses. Fantastic relationship, obviously. Scripture says he spoke face to face. That, of course, is a figure of speech, referring to a close friendship. Moses, of course, did not see God's face. And later in this passage, we understand why. Because God says to Moses, no man has ever seen my face and lived. So we know that he didn't actually stand nose to nose with God and see God, but God's presence was there, and, and Moses knew God was there just as God knew Moses was there, and they communed as, as friends. Moses' relationship to God seems to be unique in all of the Old Testament. There were godly kings, as you well know, as the great David and, and as Josiah and Hezekiah, uh, several of the kings who did right in the sight of God. And there were mighty prophets as Elijah and Elisha, Samuel, but none would have the intimate relationship with God that Moses had. Let's, let me just turn to the very end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 34, the last three verses in the chapter. Verse 9 says, Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, 
And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, and all his servants and in all his land, and for all the mighty power, and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. I mean, you and I know, as Moses knew, that the terror and the mighty signs were performed by God. But because Moses was God's instrument, Moses bears some of the uh, splendor of it all, you might say. And certainly when this verse says in verse 10 that since then no other prophet has risen, obviously that doesn't mean, I mean, that's not viewed from the, from the end of, of the Old Testament. That's viewed from Joshua's day. He's the one who probably penned these words at the end of, of Deuteronomy. But certainly as you read through the Old Testament, all the way through to the other end, you find that there is no other person about whom it is said that he stood face to face with God and communed with God as with a friend. Even though we know that David understood God in ways that were, were uh, just wondrous because of what he pens in the, in the great Psalms. But even so, there seems to be no passage of Scripture that supports a relationship as close as Moses had with God. By the way, it needs to be remembered that is not because Moses was such a wonderful person. It was because that was God's choice. We are never responsible for good things. God is responsible for all good things. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. I mean, God is the same. He's immutable yesterday, today, and forever. And, and the scripture also tells us that uh, God does not play favorites. And so what we have here is God's choice to have a relationship with Moses then, which others didn't have, but which we will all have one day, an even greater relationship with him. Because one day we will see Jesus face to face. And Moses did not have that opportunity while he lived. When Moses left the tent, the scripture gives this little interesting uh, insight here. Why does it say this? It doesn't have to, but it says, When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Why does it say that? I mean, who cares? Well, Joshua is Moses' apprentice. Joshua is the one who is learning to walk in the steps in which Moses walked. And I'm sure that this young man... <laughs> You know, can you imagine, how would you like to be Moses' apprentice? In some ways you'd think, oh, that's wondrous, but in other ways it would be a frightening thing. To, to know that one day you're going to have to step into sandals that are many sizes too big for your feet, so to speak. Not because Moses was made of molecule, molecules that were somehow superior to others, but simply because he was man, God's man at God's hour, and this is the way God chose to use him. As Joshua followed on in faithfulness with God, he had as much praise uh, you know, in, in God's halls of heaven as, as Moses. And, and all of us, if we are doing what God has called us to do, then, then we are as worthy of, of God's honor and praise as anyone, because none of us is worthy.
There's none righteous, no, not one. And so all the worthiness comes from Christ, and his worthiness is perfect. So what, what is this about? It's helping us to understand the role that Joshua will, pray, will play. Because we've already been told that Joshua was loud up the mountain. He was halfway up the mountain for the 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was up there. And I don't know what Joshua was doing for 40 days and 40 nights while Moses was on the top of the mountain, but he was there. And he was the only one allowed on the mountain. Not even a beast was to touch the mountain. But Joshua was there. Uh, Joshua is being groomed because Joshua has a big job ahead. How, how many of us have been groomed for a job that's not going to occur for 40 years? And yet that's the way it is with Joshua. He is a young man now, but he won't be a young man when he takes over. He will be a mature person. But he is behind at the tent afterwards to guard it, to serve as caretaker, and I think kind of to bask in the afterglow. Kind of implies he was there when Moses was there. And therefore he witnessed the pillar of God firsthand. Maybe even heard the words of God. We don't know. Verse 12 then Moses said to the Lord, See, thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I might find favor in thy sight. Consider, too, this nation, thy people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I and thy people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. This is a profound statement that Moses is making in the presence of God. This passage of Scripture and, and the remaining passage all the way to the end of the chapter gives us some real insight into the Christ-like nature of this man, Moses. He is again standing before God. He is again interceding for his wayward people. And you'll notice that as he talks to God and refers to himself, he also says, and thy people, and thy people. Moses does not divorce himself from this wayward people. He, he reminds me uh, of, of Ezra, who, who would pray, you know, that, uh, I mean, even though he had been walking faithfully, he would, he would put himself in the place of his people and intercede for them as if he had committed the same sin that they had this intercession that he is performing is what Christ performs. As you probably well know, the scripture tells us that Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. Intercession is a Christ-like activity. To be an intercessor is to be Christ-like. We ever want to know what it is to be Christ-like? What does it mean to be Christ-like? Does it mean that we just don't go around kicking dogs and, and we don't go around doing all these bad things that go on in the world today? No, it means going to the other end of the spectrum. It means doing what the world wouldn't even think of doing or wouldn't even believe had any value. It means being an intercessor. At least it means that in part. In this passage, 
of Scripture, we're witnessing here bold and persistent prayer. I mean, this man, Moses, is standing before God and he's saying, this is what you have said, Lord, now therefore. Moses' boldness is not based upon his authority as the human leader of Israel. I don't think he accounts that for much of anything. So what is the basis of his prayer? Why is he bold in persistence? What, what gives him the right to do that? It comes from his knowledge of the character of God. He knew that God was absolutely true to his word. Therefore, he quotes God's word back to him. And you've probably heard that in many instances. That's a great way to pray. Quote God's word back to him. He loves it because his word is absolute truth. And he cannot violate his word. Moses, furthermore, understood the nature of God. He understood the nature of God because he heard and believed the Word of God. And this enabled him to be persistent in prayer. And these are the principles that are important to us behind the passage that we have so often quoted in uh, Matthew chapter 7. We just refresh our minds on that passage. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, where he says... The Lord is speaking and he says, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be opened. This, this is a passage of Scripture which clearly teaches the persistent nature of true prayer. But that persistence must be based on a true understanding of the nature and character of God. It isn't a persistence in, well, this is what I want and I'm going to just keep asking for it until I get it. It's not what that's saying at all. It's saying that if you are aware of what God wants done, then you can persist in it and you know it's going to happen because it's God's will. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he will do it. But if we ask it to consume it on our flesh, forget it. To persist in prayer that is not in accord with the character of God or the word of God is to be foolhardy in prayer. And, and you know, a lot of people have knocked, 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 prayed, 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 asked, 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 and not gotten it because it wasn't in accordance with the nature of God or in accordance with His Word. Why did Jesus call James and John the, <laughs> the sons of thunder? Because they said, Oh, Lord, send fire on these people. Well, they could have asked the Lord to send fire on these people from then until kingdom come, so to speak. God wouldn't have done it because it wasn't according to the nature and character of the Word of God. That's why it's really hard to pray if we don't know who God is we don't really know who God is, it's really hard to pray. Because we must pray according to His nature and His character. To, to understand His grace and His mercy, but also understand His justice and His, and his righteousness and, and His peace and, and His glory. True intercessory prayer, I believe, has as one of its ultimate goals the glorification of God that God will be glorified. Yes, we want the soul to be saved, that that soul will not be damned, but we want that soul to be saved to the glory of God. Moses is not real happy with his position here as we gather from this passage. He's in between God and Israel. 
And he's come to know who God is, and he certainly knows who Israel is. And he's not finding it a fun place to be at the moment when God says, I'm not going to be with you guys. Suddenly Moses finds himself uh, sort of out on the limb with the saw working very quickly at the part between him and the trunk of the tree, it would seem. He feels insufficiently informed to lead Israel. You know, he keeps saying, well, who are you going to send with me? Why, why does he say that? Because remember when he was at the burning bush and, and he argued with God about the fact he couldn't speak so well, whatever all that meant, God said, all right, all right, I'll send you Aaron. He'll be with you. And, and Aaron's been with him, so what's his problem? Well, of course, he feels totally stabbed in the back by Aaron. I mean, Aaron has made this calf. Of course, it was just accidentally dumped a lot of rings in the fire and out came this calf. It wasn't really his fault, but nevertheless, Moses feels abandoned. And, you know, he can't even say, well, it's my kid brother. He doesn't know any better because it's his elder, his elder brother. Not necessarily does age have that much to do with wisdom, but sometimes you'd think it would. So he goes to God and he says, you've commanded me to bring this people up from the Sinai to the promised land, but you said you will not be in our midst. Now, I think Moses was thinking that, I mean, we're talking about apples and oranges here. This can't happen. Furthermore, you said that you would send an angel before us, but, but who's this angel? Who are you going to send with me? I think he meant he wanted like somebody with flesh and blood, maybe, they could actually commune with. We talk about being alone. I mean, Moses had Joshua, yes, but it says Joshua was a young man. Whatever that meant, I don't think he was a teenager. But, you know, uh, Joshua apparently wasn't to the place where Moses could actually bear his soul to Joshua. So Moses had no one except the Lord. Moses reminded the Lord that he had told him, you say you know me and that I have found favor in your sight. If this is true... He said, why are you sending me to lead this people without your presence in our midst? Moses knew God well enough to know that this was a hopeless and a useless task to lead these people through the wilderness up to, the Can up to Canaan and try to conquer this land without you in our midst. Forget it. After all, and, and then he brings it really to the key point here. It was God's presence in their midst that made them the people of God. If God's presence is not there, they aren't the people of God. Just a bunch of escaped slaves. They're in big trouble. They're going to try to conquer a, a, a settled land with big walled cities and, and mighty armies. They're going to try to conquer this land and God's not with them. No way, it won't happen. Now the parallel here is, is what's interesting to me. It's the parallel, I think, it's almost inescapable between Israel and the church. The Israelites were the people of God only if God dwelled in their midst. The church is the body of Christ only if it is indwelled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is God alone who won the victories for Israel through Israel. It is God alone who establishes His kingdom through the church. The church can do its dead-level best to try to establish his kingdom in its own strength, and it isn't going to happen. The church has tried it for 2,000 years. There is a, a philosophy having to do with the end times, which uh, you know, roughly parallels what was called post-millennialism, 
the whole idea that the church can actually create the kingdom of God here on the earth. That the church, by going forward and conquering all these lands and forcing them to be Christian, will create the kingdom of God on this earth. And that isn't going to happen. And that's not what God intended in the first place. The church is not supposed to be uh, the institution that conquers the world by you know, gaining political domination and economic domination or anything else. The church is a spiritual army. And God is not only the commander, he is the strength of that army. And that army will only succeed in his strength. To Moses, angelic help was fine. Thank you, God. I'm glad I'm going to have an angel uh, to go along. But more important is your presence in our midst because the angel isn't going to do us much good if you're not here. You and I, and, and we as a church, may be blessed with an angel in our midst, and, and that's wonderful. But it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Not an angel in us, or an angel around us, or an angel anything. It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And Paul summed it up so beautifully when he said in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That has got to be a verse that we all understand and adopt into our lives to know that there is nothing that you or I can do for God's kingdom save in the strength and power of Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Because Christ lives within us and it is through the indwelling Christ that we individually and we as the body of Christ corporately are effective here in this world. And this parallel is so obvious here in Israel. And Moses knew it. God, if you're not in our midst, we can't do it. He says, if you're not going to be in our midst and go with us, don't lead us up from here. Is Moses just hard-headed? Is Moses just selfish? Moses is praying according to God's will. God wants to be in the midst of Israel. He intends to be in the midst of Israel. He is outside the camp because he wants Israel to get its act together and repent and submit and walk humbly before their God. Because as we'll see, God will be in their midst and the tabernacle will be right smack in the middle of the camp. And when they dedicate that temple, I mean that tabernacle, I mean the Shekinah glory of God as, as it's interpreted, will just glow from its midst. And Israel will know God is here. God is in our midst. And we can go forth and we can take Canaan. Yeah, right. Until we discover that 12, 10 of the 12 spies tell us it's going to be hard. And then something happens, you know. Suddenly that fire seems to get dampened down. But, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens with a little doubt here, a little doubt there, here a doubt, there a doubt, everywhere a doubt, doubt, you know. <laughs> and, and pretty soon... Pretty soon, it's massive lack of faith. And then disaster strikes. Well, we'll have to move on from here next week.